and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. You know, at the end of the day, there's older people that love Jesus and older people that don't. And at the end of the day, there's younger people who love Jesus and younger people that don't. Don't you spend an ounce of energy uh, complaining about younger generations. Instead, find those that love Jesus, encourage them. Find those that are lost and will talk to you and talk to them about Jesus. And let's keep this gospel going, like, just like Jesus told us in the Great Commission, uh, from one person to the next, all over the world, where you live and where you don't live, and so excited to see so many ways that that's happening before us. We'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And as you're turning there, buenos dias, Giovanni. As you're turning there, I want to talk to you about a book called Atomic Habits. It's just a little book. It's a secular book, but it's got some uh, neat things in it. One of the things is an illustration about pointing and calling. And in there, uh, James Clear tells a story about the Japanese railway system and how it's regarded as one of the best in the world. And if you've ever found yourself riding a train in Tokyo, I haven't done that yet, maybe one day, but you'll notice that the conductors have a peculiar habit. As each operator runs their train, they proceed through a ritual of pointing at different objects and calling out commands as they're dri driving their train. So when the train approaches a signal, the operator will point at it and say, signal is green. And as the train pulls into and out of the station, the operator will point at the speedometer and they'll call out the exact speed that the train's going. When it's time to leave, the operator will point at the timetable and state the time again out loud. And on the platform, other employees are performing similar actions to that. Before each train departs, staff members uh, will uh, point along the edges of the platform and they'll declare, all clear. Every detail is identified, pointed at, and named out loud. This process is called pointing and calling. And it's a safety system designed to reduce mistakes. Well, has it reduced mistakes? It sure has. It works incredibly well. Pointing and calling for the Japanese railway system has reduced errors by up to 85% and cuts down accidents by 30%. The New York train station people, they loved it so much, they said, let's implement that here, but we can't really get our people to call things out. We'll get them just to point. So at least they're recognizing that, that the light is green and that sort of thing. And they've cut down uh, problems by 57% by doing that. Pointing and calling, though, had done it 85%. It's so effective because it raises the level of awareness that, uh, that each person is experiencing as they're going through their motions from the non-conscious level to the conscious level and just that extra little point where they're doing that. Well, today, we're going to see a little of pointing and calling leadership by the Apostle Peter 
as they had an, an important decision to make before them there before the day of Pentecost. So we're in Acts chapter 1, going to read verses 12 through 26. It says, Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Olive Mountain, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. The other Judas, of course, had left them, as we'll see in a moment. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 people. That's a pretty full room. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Hope you haven't had lunch yet. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadelma, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his place, his office. So, one of the men who, so out of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, John the Baptist, until the day when Jesus was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. They put forward Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, that's a lot of nicknames, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Prayer-based decision-making. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the music we've had this morning and the testimony of the graduates. Lord, we again pray that you bless them. As we look at this passage now, this unique time between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, these 10 days that the apostles were together, Lord, we thank you for these few verses that share about that time and what we learn from them. And God, we thank you not only for their life together during that time, their life waiting on the uh, day of Pentecost and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that would, after that, characterize all believers that would happen on the day of Pentecost. We, we thank you that that time found them united and focused together on what you had for them, praying together. And we thank you that they model for us here making a decision, Lord, bathed in prayer. Uh, they, they took the time to identify and point and call out clear criteria that needed to happen from this leader that they were raising up, God. And Lord, as I think about our graduates and the decisions before them, when I think about the rest of us and any decisions before us, we thank you for what we can glean from this passage about decisions that we have in our own life, Lord. And we know that the ultimate decision, of course, is to choose to follow you as Lord and Savior, to receive you as Savior and Lord, and to follow you from that day forward, God. And Lord, then we have a number of much smaller choices after that, Lord, having decided to follow you and been born again by your grace through our faith. 
We know that you put decisions before us, Lord, and I thank you that uh, you have now given us your Holy Spirit. So when we have decisions before you, the Spirit will remind us of things we know from the Word of God, and we can, with your help, make decisions that honor and glorify you and reject decisions that would take us uh, away from the blessed path that you have for us. Lord, bless us as we look at this passage. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, amen. Well, we finished a sermon series through the book of Colossians, for those that are just joining us. We did that right before Easter. And in June, we're going to go into a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so hopefully some of you have already been reading through Ecclesiastes. And if you haven't yet, I urge you to do that and to be ready for that sermon series. But between then and now, as we've had a guest speaker or two, we also uh, wanted to take the time to just kind of follow those 50 days between Jesus' resurrection and the day of Pentecost. And so we've been looking at little things that happened along the way in those 50 days. During those days, Jesus appeared to his disciples and including the powerful encounter he had with Thomas on the eighth day after his resurrection. There was his wonderful restoration of Peter there at the Sea of Galilee and his giving of the Great Commission. And last time we talked about how his theme during those 40 days of teaching was the kingdom of God, God's rightful place as king in your life and what it means to have him rule spiritually now and what it means that he's coming back later to rule physically on earth. And then we saw his ascension to heaven, his raising up to heaven in the clouds. And we were told that one day he'll come back in like manner, probably first at the rapture where the saints are raptured up and then seven years later coming back to put his physical kingdom on earth is the way that I believe that unfolds from the scriptures. But in today's passage, we're going to look at the 10 days between that ascension to heaven and the day of Pentecost. We saw back in earlier in verses 4 through 8 of Acts chapter 1 that Jesus said, you wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you're going to be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we talked a little bit last time about how hard it is to wait. How hard it is to wait. Everything inside those guys must have said, we hate waiting, we like fishing, let's go back to Galilee and fish some more. And Matthew maybe wanted to go back and resume his tax collector business or whatever. But Jesus said, wait, wait, wait. You've heard what I've taught you. Now just wait, wait together for what comes next. And of course, we recognize that sometimes waiting is the hardest part. Oh, if in my own life and in many times I've talked to people within the church and beyond that they couldn't just wait on the Lord. They went ahead and made that rash decision, that sinful decision, and it cost them in many ways because they couldn't wait. And so we need to take that to heart. Uh, when you don't know what to do, don't go out and do something stupid. Wait on the Lord. And they were doing that together. So today's passage is about those 10 unique days in between Jesus's physical presence with them and the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling them in all future believers. I think last time I mentioned John 7. John 7, verses 37 through 39. In that passage, it says, On the last day of the feast, Jesus cried out among them, probably about the same time the high priest was about to do his little water offering and everybody was looking at him across the way there, just about 50 yards away probably. Jesus said, The one who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And verse 39 says, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later going to receive. The Spirit had not been given yet because Jesus had not been glorified yet. On the day of Pentecost, after that day, and we're going to look at it next time, 
But on the day of Pentecost, after the Spirit fell on them, from that time forward, everyone who's ever turned to Christ, been born again, the Holy Spirit has drawn them to salvation. They've repented and believed. They've been converted and born again. Everyone that that's true of now has the Holy Spirit residing in their heart, the Spirit of Christ, who the Bible teaches is in them forever after that as the down payment of what God's going to do when they're physically with Christ one day. Isn't that awesome? So they're in those 10 days before that permanent indwelling, and they're together. In some aspects, the experience was unique to them. There's some things that are for that 10-day period, and we really can't own it. But as all Scripture does, it yields beautiful lessons for us. And so if we understand what's unique to them and then look at what the guidance it gives us, we can learn a lot. They were waiting on the outpouring of the Spirit that Jesus had promised would come upon them in a few days. It wound up happening the day of Pentecost. We're waiting for the return of Christ. And even as we every once in a while look up to see, is he there? Is he going to pull us up? Uh, we've got work to do. And he told us stories about working while we're waiting, but still waiting and worshiping and all those things that he has for us. Well, since this passage also gets into making decisions, I believe it can help not only these grads that were down here, but others of us with the decisions before us. Well, verses 12 through 14, let's look at this. As the disciples gathered, they prayed and they worshiped. Verse 12 says, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, from the Olive Mountain, we could call it, which is near Jerusalem. It says a Sabbath day's journey away. Olive Mountain, it's across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. Some of you have been there. It's a large hill rising two feet higher than the city, which is interesting. A Sabbath day journey was how far they could travel when it was a Sabbath without it being considered work and thus violating what the rabbis had said to do. Not so much Old Testament law as much as one of the traditions they'd put in, but it became a good way to describe things. Uh, a Sabbath day journey was 2,000 cubits or 3,000 feet or about half a mile. So that's about how far they went from where they saw Jesus go to heaven back to the upper room. Look at verse 13. It says, and when they had entered, they went to the upper room that's where they were staying, it says. And then it mentions the 11 remaining disciples with Peter listed first, as always. You count them up, you get 11. Jesus had appointed 12 in Matthew 10. He had prayed and fasted, and he appointed 12 disciples to be the apostles. Judas had betrayed, so 12 became 11. There they are in the upper room. And uh, that's the same upper room where Jesus had washed their feet. He said, the new command I give you, to love one another as I have loved you. I've washed your feet. I'm not, you're not greater than me, but I washed your feet, and I want you to be servants, the kind of people that would serve and wash one another's feet and love others as I have loved you. That's the, what makes the new command the new command. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to love, but the new command is, think about how Jesus would do it when you're out there trying to serve and love people and go and do that likewise. Um, and it's also where he gave them the rest of that upper room discourse that also talked about Holy Spirit power when the Holy Spirit finally came upon them. Well, the second part of verse 14 lets us know that many women were there also, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' siblings. It says his brothers, but the word there could be the brothers and sisters that the scriptures tell us about. And this is so great because less than a year before this, John 7, 5 tells us that not even his brothers believed in him. Well, what had made the difference? They'd seen him die on the cross. They had seen him alive after death, risen from the dead. And they too followed him. And of course, uh, his brother James and his brother Jude wound up 
writing New Testament letters when Jesus got a hold of them, which is great. They finally understood he's our Lord and Savior, not just our big brother. He's our Lord and Savior. By the way, this is the last occurrence of Mary in the New Testament. As key a role as she has in the Gospels as far as being the mother of Jesus, the earthly mother of Jesus through the virgin birth and the divine plan that God had, this is the last time you're going to see her name. She has a beautiful role in the Bible, but she's not who the Bible wants you to worship. It's Jesus. It would be highly offensive to her to be called a co-redemptrix, a co-redeemer with Jesus. That's the language of the Roman Catholic Church, and she would just have rejected that completely. You don't pray to her to get to Jesus. You go to Jesus, and you pray to him, and Mary is one of the dear saints that followed her son, Jesus, and we need to follow him as well. Now, what were those disciples doing in that upper room? There they were. I don't know if they had uh, cable TV or not, but uh, look at verse 14. It tells us what they were doing. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. So it mentions the guys, it mentions the ladies, it mentions the brothers and sisters. They were all there. And what were they doing? They were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. And that is an awesome word in the book of Acts, the word one accord. It's homo, homo thumadon. It means to have the same mind. It means to have one mind, to be in one accord, to have the same focus. What was their focus? It was following Jesus. It was glorifying God. They knew that it would involve witnessing to those who didn't know the Lord, but it meant obeying him and doing what he said. And they were waiting there and they were devoting themselves to prayer in one accord. I like how Romans 15, 6 says it, it has the one accord word. And then right after that it says, with one accord, they raised one voice, one mouth, literally. And so as one would pray, their hearts were uniting with that person in that prayer. When another would pray out loud, they were uniting in that prayer out loud. Folks, Jesus had modeled prayer for them and taught prayer to them and prayed with them. He had, had pointed it and called it enough. They knew that to honor him was when they were together to pray out loud with each other about all that was on their heart. And let me encourage you not just to gather in the small groups that we have all week at the tabernacle, but to pray out loud with others in those groups and ministries. And of course, we have the public prayers during the service time to join hearts together and agree with those prayers. I'll tell you, as a pastor over the years, I have tried to identify things that are habits of highly effective Christians. And I'll say it couple different ways. The first way is I've never seen a highly effective Christian that didn't pray out loud with others. I know for some of you, you've never done that even with your spouse at home. You've never taken the time to pray out loud with them about matters other than the blessing of a meal. But there's power when you do that. And let me encourage us all to be people that do that. Um, the other way I'll say it is if I could name five habits of highly effective Christians, it would be right in there. Uh, getting together with other believers and praying out loud, pouring your hearts out to them. And I'm so delighted uh, to report that all week long that goes on. There'll be a group of men gather in the morning. They'll be praying like that. Ladies do throughout the week. Different groups, small groups in teaching have that time during the week. If you're in your Sunday school class and you take 20 minutes of prayer requests and then one person prays for uh, one minute, why not instead just jump right into prayer and pray the request to Lord and popcorn it around the room? And we certainly want to have more of that. This was such an energizing time for them as they united hearts, gathering together and praying like that. Now, they were praying together like that, but that's not all they were doing. Turn to Luke chapter 24. 
So Acts is written by Luke. It's part two of Luke's writings. Part one is the gospel of Luke. At the end of Luke's gospel, he covers, at the end of Luke's gospel, he covers the ascension of Christ and what they were doing just before that. And in chapter one in Acts, he goes back into it. Look what he makes clear they were also doing in Luke chapter 24, verse 50 to 53. It says, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Wouldn't it be great to have been there and got a blessing directly from Jesus? While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So get this, it's one thing to have a guy blessing you and praying for you, right? How about another thing is when you look up because your eyes were closed, he's up there on the way up, you know, he's blessing them. That's the last image they had with him was of them blessing them. Parents, when your kids do go off to college, if they're gonna go off to college, make one of the last memories they have before that moment happens of you laying your hands on them and blessing them. And of course, you do that with your children there at the earliest ages, and you grandparents take the time to do that as well. Speak words of life and blessing over your children and those that you know. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Verse 52, what'd they do during those 10 days? They worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with mega joy, that's the great word, returned to Jerusalem with mega joy, continually in the temple, blessing God. So it wasn't just prayers to him, Lord, we're tired of waiting, come now. It was also, Lord, we just worship you. We praise you for who you are and for what you do. And they were doing that at the temple. So they weren't just in the upper room there in Jerusalem. They were going together to the temple. And what a curious sight they must have been there in the temple. Remember, Jesus only appeared to his own disciples alive. As far as the high priests and all those priests were concerned, they had taken care of their Jesus problem. He was dead. And yet here's these 120, maybe up to 500, since uh, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the number 500 disciples that saw him alive. And they're in the corner of the temple there. They're gathered together and they're singing songs about Jesus. And that must have been such a curious sight to those who thought they were done with Jesus. They were worshiping him publicly there. Uh, many look at us the same way today. Why do you go to church? Why do you gather with others? You just seem nuts. They see us out sometimes in public saying, praise God, and, and all of a sudden turning moments of uh, you know, despair into little times of praise as we're out there. I'm sure Isaac's done this. I'm sure sometimes he's just taking his guitar out and he's in a public place and playing and others are singing praises and others in the park are going, that dude's crazy. He's singing about Jesus like he's real. And yet that's what we do as we go around. They were already doing that. It's just such a great reminder that church was God's idea. Every person you talk to this week, you're going to run into some that say, yeah, I love Jesus. I'm just not much for getting together in church with others. No, no. Every person needs Jesus and they need a church home. They need brothers and sisters who will love them and know them and keep praying for them. And when 20 years later, uh, they're in the midst of sin and they say, you know what, I need to go back to my father's house. I need to go to where the Lord is. And, and they'll go and they'll restore their faith in God. And they'll see some of those dear saints that taught them in Sunday school and loved them back then. And they'll just feel home. I can't tell you how many times somebody out there now has told me after years away, Man, when, when, when all of life was just messed up and it seemed like it was over, the Holy Spirit said, go on back there to the tabernacle and get with the people you know. Return to faith in the Lord. 
And the devil said, don't do that. That'd be stupid. And they're having this little fight go on. You know what? They've made it. And I can't tell you the number of people who have told me. I came and it just felt like I was home. Home with the Lord. Home with God's people. Home with the family of God. And that's meant to be part of it. These disciples were together. Judas, of course, had missed out on all that. After his sin, he turned from the Lord. He turned from his brothers and sisters in Christ. And that showed, you know, the, that, that he wasn't really the Lord. He was the, with the Lord. He was the son of perdition. Peter had also blown it, but he'd gone to where the disciples were, and now he was leading them. How about that? God uses some of these people to become the very leaders of the church. And he was restored with faith in Christ, and he is a big part of what happens next, because as the disciples gathered, they heard and applied the Bible. We see that in verses 15 through 20. Look again at verse 15 there. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And it says there was about 120 in that company of believers as he stood up. And what does Peter do? We read it a little bit ago. Peter goes on to make scriptural reflection on Judas's betrayal. They had had 12. Judas had betrayed the Lord. He left them. They had 11. They needed to restore the number to 12. Now what Peter does here is like pointing and calling. He points out that the 12 had become 11. Another will need to fill Judas's place to get that number back to 12, the number that Jesus had appointed originally in Matthew 10. And, and he also lets us know other things that we didn't quite know in the gospel, from the Gospels. Uh, he, he lets us know more about Judas's gruesome death. The Gospels tell us that Judas uh, had, had returned the money to the priest. They bought a field with it, the field of blood, and that he had went out and hanged himself. Uh, that's what the scriptures tell us. But here it tells us that he, he must have hung himself uh, above rocks because apparently the rope had broken where he was hung and as his body hung there, nobody had taken it down. He had such an infamous reputation and his decaying body broke off the tree and Judas's body broke open on the rocks below. And that field became so associated with him that it's if, as if he had bought it himself. That's his field that came from his betrayal money. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. And Peter quotes a couple of the Psalms that by extension related to Judas. Psalm 69, 25, let the betrayer's camp become desolate. Judas didn't gain anything by betraying the Lord. He wouldn't have been accepted by the new crowd and he had left the old crowd and didn't turn back to Jesus. I believe he could have, but he didn't. The son of perdition who never truly knew the Lord. Peter also quotes Psalm 109.8, let another take his office. Jesus himself had prayed over and appointed those 12 to have that special role. And there's just something about that number 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Interestingly, there were 13 tribes among the 12 tribes of Israel, the way you put it together. And now there were to be these 12 apostles. 12 had become 11 that needed to get back to 12. But that number 12 is interesting. Matthew 19 Verses 27 and 28. We're going to put it on the board here for you. There it says, Then Peter said in reply to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And here's what Jesus said to them. Truly I say to you, in the new world, the palygenesia, in the new genesis, in the regeneration, some of your translations read, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in Revelation 21, we read that there's gates that have the names of the 12 apostles on them. And I know how some of you think, and you might be right, I don't think you are, but I know how some of you think. You think, well, what Peter does here is rash. 
He's in the flesh. He shouldn't have done it. And really, God's appointed apostle to replace Judas was Paul. And so Paul gets appointed by Jesus personally later, and he's really the 12th one. And you say, uh, what Peter did here probably shouldn't have been done. And I know you think like that, because Paul is later called by, to be an apostle by Jesus himself. But others are also called apostles in the pages of the New Testament. There was uh, Barnabas, there was Andronicus and Junius, there was uh, James, the Lord's brother, even though he was not the James of James and John, those brothers. Uh, it, but, but he, you know, those are called apostles as well. And so there's more than 13. It winds up going up to 16 or 17 before the scriptures are done. Now, you would also probably point out that the one they selected, we're going to see that in a minute, is never heard from again in the page of the New Testament. But after Acts 1, only Peter, James, and John are heard from again among those in the New Testament. None of the other 11 here told Peter to just be quiet. This is when we're waiting, Jesus. We can't be doing any leading right now. We don't, can't do any organizing right now. But their waiting was not inconsistent with worshiping, with praying and even leading out and figuring this out. Some people say, well, I just don't believe in organized religion. Well, do you prefer disorganized religion? You know, the biggest problem in the world is isolation, people being isolated from others. And here's an example of the church organizing, the leaders organizing for effective ministry so that they could be ready for what the Lord wanted to do next. So while they were waiting, they were still figuring some things out to move it forward. So that the 12 again would include 12 who had experienced everything they had. Now here's what we can apply so far. It will help you make good decisions if you're regularly around godly people. Amen? It will help you make godly decisions if you're praying with them about the big and small details of life. Amen? And it's also incredibly important to be in the Bible, reflecting on it, studying it together with other believers, to see what light it sheds on your important decisions. And that leads us to our third point. As the disciples gathered, they thoughtfully made decisions, verses 21 to 26. So I love this because in a spirit of prayer and Bible study, Peter suggests certain criteria that must be met in Judas's replacement, that must be met. Look at verse 21. So one of the men, out of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, John the Baptist, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So we don't know how many men um, among the men of those 120 there in the upper room fit that criteria. We know that 500 people saw Jesus alive, so when you take out half the women, there may have been 250 men around. We don't know how many of that number had been with Jesus and the group all the way back to John the Baptist baptizing Jesus all the way forward to when he ascended. We can imagine that the men they were selecting from were among the 70. Do you remember the 70 that's in Luke chapter 10? The ones Jesus sent out two by two. 
In fact, writing in the fourth century, the historian Eusebius says that both these men they name here were among those 70 who had gone out, who also loved Jesus, who had also followed from place to place with Jesus and had served him and even gone out and cast out demons and, and uh, shared that Jesus was coming to town and all the different things the 70 did during that time. So they had those criteria. Peter says, one of those men who meet the criteria need to join the 12 as witnesses of Christ's resurrection. So let me tell you this. When you have a decision to make, make sure you lay out all the criteria you should believe should be in that decision. And within your criteria need to be things that the Bible clearly says is okay and things the Bible says is not okay. In this case, two men met the criteria. Joseph, whose nickname was Bar Sabbath or son of the Sabbath, he must have liked to go to Sabbath school. And his also nickname was Justice or Righteous One. And Matthias' name means Gift of God. Both of those men met the criteria. So in their eyes, both would have been acceptable replacements. They need one, but they've got at least two that fit the criteria. What that means is that there were others that didn't or for whatever reason got weeded out along the way. Peter pointed and he called out criteria that needed to be met and we should also do that when we've got a decision to make. So for instance, we had some young folks up here and among them were single people and you know, the Bible's got clear things to say about trying by faith to be a virgin until you marry so your virginity can be a precious gift to your spouse on your wedding day. It's got things also to say about believers when they're dating should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So no believer should say, I, I want to marry an unbeliever. It happens and God can keep working in your life. And many of those times we see that unbelieving husband or wife won to Christ. Other times we see years of heartache with that unequally yoked. And scripture says when you're in there, keep living with them and serving them. And hopefully they'll come to know Jesus one day as you pray for that. But on the front end, when you're in that dating time, think about this. A committed Christian young person should only marry what? Another committed Christian young person. Amen? 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, don't be unequally yoked with non-believers. So if you have three choices before you, and one is a non-Christian, and the other is a professing Christian who tells you what you want to hear, but the fruit's not there. They're obviously not walking with Jesus. And the third person is a committed Christian. How many of those three meet the biblical criteria? Really, just the last one, right? Not the one who clearly says they don't know Christ. Not the one who's just saying it to try to get you to marry them. But the last one, the one who themselves is walking with Christ and you've got a similar faith. Now, what happens if none of the ones you're interested in meet the criteria? You wait on the Lord. And if they didn't have anybody that met that criteria, it would have been a time for Peter to say, huh, we got ahead of ourselves here. Let's just wait on the Lord and maybe Jesus himself will appoint somebody later. Somebody like Paul for those that believe it was Paul, right? And certainly... The Apostles 12 had that special, but there were other ones that are going to be raised up. And of course, today, God still raises up leaders for his church and people to be together with other believers to serve the Lord. Here they had one opening and two legitimate possibilities. Well, what do you do in that scenario? Well, what did they do? They prayed again. So they prayed on the, fr they, were, they were in a spirit of prayer and worship. 
They were reflecting on God's word. They were praying together. And then once they put this together, look what it says here. Verse 24, and they prayed. We could write the word again in there. And they prayed again and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. Mm. So they prayed again. Lord, we are praying about this again. It's a complete process in the middle, in the beginning, the middle, and the end, prayed about. Now, folks, all this was happening before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwelt believers after that. So it's pretty powerful that God was already with them in a special way to help them. We know from the end of John's gospel that Jesus had breathed on them, so they had some type of helping with the Holy Spirit in the days before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we're on the other side of that now. I believe this side of the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit helps us all through the prayer-based decision-making process and gives us peace about our final choice that meets the biblical criteria. Now here they're selecting leaders. We've got lots of ways we're doing that right now. But if you've got a decision before you and you, first of all, with the biblical criteria and the criteria you've set, weed things down to just the, the final possibilities, I believe when you lift those up to the Lord, keep on working through your pros and cons, that God the Holy Spirit gives you peace about which direction to go. And if you have three things that would all be legitimate options for you, then I believe you've got it made either way. And sometimes you just need to choose among them with the best of your knowledge and you have God's peace and you go forward and God will use that even if three years later you're on to the First, you come back to the first job that you thought you'd have and you've learned three years worth of, stuff, worth of stuff before you get there. I believe the Holy Spirit takes care of you in all that process. But they were still a few days away from Pentecost. And so what they did was they, having two legitimate possibilities for the one opening, they did a common practice in the Old Testament days which appears here for the last time. And so one of the reasons why we don't draw lots for leaders today is, you know, that they're doing it for the last time right here and then the day of Pentecost comes. Now, I still think if you got one opening and two great possibilities, drawing lots or something like that, flipping a coin, would be better than ever allowing an unfit or unqualified candidate to serve. We need three people. We've got five possibilities. Only two of them are qualified. So let's just let the church choose three or however we'll choose three. And one of them was unqualified. No, 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 no. None of them can not meet the biblical criteria. They have to meet the biblical criteria when you're making decisions like that. So there may be something to this lot stuff all these years later. It says the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11. You don't have to draw lots or flip coins the final way to make a decision, but the rest of this should be there as we work down through it. Let's work down through it one more time before we move to closing. If you have a decision to make before you, it's critical that you're the kind of person that's already around godly people in a church family. You're already around godly people that love you and you love them. You know them, they know you. That helps you make good decisions. It's critical that you pray alone about it and with others about the big and small details of your life. That'll help you so much. It's critical that you reflect on and obey clear scriptural teaching, especially if it weighs in on that criteria for decision. You need to point and call things out when they are seen as green lights and red lights. Lord, I can make a lot of money if I just lie about this. That's a red light, right? 
You call it what it is and say, God must not have this decision for me to make. It doesn't meet the criteria. It's not one of the possibilities. I may, may make less by telling the truth, but I'm going to be a person that tells the truth before the Lord. Then you narrow down your pool of possibilities with good criteria like Peter did here. Then you pray about it again by yourself and with others. And then you choose one of the God-honoring choices and go on serving Jesus. Speaking of choices... If you're here and you're a non-believer, there's two choices before you today. One is to remain an unbeliever, die and go to hell. Another is to come face to face with Jesus' love for you and what he did for you on the cross, dying in your place of judgment so if you believe in him, he'll transfer the punishment due your sin to himself and what he did for you on the cross. The choice is to go on to hell then or to turn to Christ and start experiencing eternal life the moment you do. Really, you've heard, oh, well, if I turn to Christ, there will be this in the, the matter that I'll have to obey and this in the matter that I'll have to obey. And God makes it really easy for us. He said, listen, all of that is for after you turn to Christ. The main thing now is do you know that you're the sinner the Bible says you are? Do you know that the Christ is the Savior? The Bible says he is. And will you go from unbelieving to believing? And if you do, you're yielding to him for the rest of your life. And so with his spirit inside of you, he'll help you obey in every area that you have to obey. It's not the individual sins that send you to hell. It's the unbelief. Once you become a believer, he's going to work in every area of your life to conform you to the image of God and you're going to be so thankful that he did. Right now you would be thinking that would be the worst thing that would be to happen to follow him in the matter of sexuality or the matter of uh, uh, you know, uh, truthfulness and different things like that. But you'll discover once you turn to Christ and give your life to him in the years past, you'll discover that you will be the best you you could possibly be with him in your heart and in your life. That's the choice before you, to choose life or to go on to hell then. And if you're a believer and you have a choice before you, man, you've got to remember the kind of things we talked about today because every choice you make that you know dishonors God keeps you from experiencing his fullness in your life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man, whatever a woman sows, they will reap. Sinful decisions reap sinful consequences. Choosing to repent of sin, turn to Christ, follow Him, brings the kind of life that He wants for you. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.